0: Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy and this week we'll be shaking the last of the sand from our toes while keeping it salty with some journeys along the western seaboard with traditional storyteller Niall de Burker, painter and sculptor Mairead Tobin and Thatcher Marie Colleen. But we begin this week in Brough County, Limerick where they're celebrating what would have been the 50th birthday of local singer-songwriter Dolores O'Riordan. Young Dream was a youth edition of the town's dreams festival created in honour of Dolores this weekend's events were also part of a broader youth arts festival happening in villages and towns in limerick and clare this month called call and response ornya gallagher took a pew with monica spencer designer of call and response to hear about the festival and about a resonant piece of bruff street furniture
1: Well, it was her local town, Bricken is actually where she lived and many of her family actually still live in this area. So, yeah, it was very, very close to her heart. And as you can see, this is a really peaceful, beautiful place um, managed entirely by the community, very strong sense of community here. So she went to school here. She uh, was very connected to the church, sang in the church. <laughs> We've been here in Brough since uh, mid-August. We ran some visual art workshops uh, we have to stay out of doors, of course, like everybody else, so we've been very grateful to the local Bruff GA Club to allow us to use their covered stand. And uh, 29 children made all sorts of uh, visual art creations, which now adorn most of the shop windows in Bruff, the post office, the spa, the groomers. And then today we have a group of young people creating a new song uh, that's going to be released on the artist's birthday, and Dolores Laura birthday, Monday, the 6th of September. My name is Monica Spencer and I am the coordinator of the Local Creative Youth Partnership which is based at Limerick and Clare Education and Training Board.
2: Oh, every day, every
1: well, we're sitting in the Morning Star Park in Brough in East Limerick on the very iconic bench, the Dolores O'Riordan Bench, which has been named after her by the local community, really based on a a kind of an an iconic interview she gave here. Her mother was with her at the time around when she was a judge on The Voice of Ireland. It was one of the last um, interviews that she gave, actually. So very strong memories in this community of her. Everybody has a story connected to her or to her family. And this is a very treasured spot. By everybody locally. So really embedded in the community in so many different ways uh,
2: throughout her life. My name is Julianne Henneley. I'm a community artist and a singer-songwriter um, based in Limerick. And I was involved with the first Dreams Festival in 2019 here in Bruff. It was a collaboration with Dolores' brother and uh, her niece as well, and some friends. Over 30 different acts got together, different singers, songwriters, to celebrate Dolores's birthday weekend. So then the next year, obviously lockdown happened. Mm-hmm. So we did something small in King John's Castle. Yeah. And then this year, we're collaborating with the local Creative Youth Partnership to bring music and art to the children in the Bruff area. And then that'll all be showcased on Dolores's birthday weekend, where she'd be 50. Today is the first day. So we said, I just thought, okay, we'll take little bits of lyrics from Dreams and give the kids one, uh, they chose one each, you know, out of a hat. That was their prompt for writing their own little verse. So from that lyric, they've been kind of writing their own thing. Now some of them have, it's hard for them to integrate, some of them don't understand. It goes back to even like, what does understanding mean? So it's really, that's what I love about songwriting, especially for kids. It's going back to just the basics of, you know, understanding each other and their own personal experiences and trying to get them to express that and getting them to learn through conversation and demystifying songwriting as well.
1: What's your name? Ava. What's your name?
2: Will.
3: Will. Um what have you done today, Will? Have you been writing music? Yeah. Yeah, what did you do? Um, I did a song about bananas. Did you? Yeah. What did you say about bananas in the song?
2: Um, I said that bananas were everywhere. Oh, cool. Yeah. What about you, Ava? I wrote a song kind of just kind of about different things like everything like we're everything and all and we can be anything we want yeah yeah and do you listen to any of the
3: any of Dolores' music
2: yeah I really liked her song called dreams oh
1: yeah it's a great
2: song you know, yeah yeah and she's from right here yeah that's really so cool
4: What
3: kind of response are you getting from the kids? And do you notice, I guess, the difference maybe during
1: COVID between the response that you're getting from them? I can't imagine if they're a little bit more or less hyper. What's the difference? I think, you know, the young people we have opted to come themselves. You can see that it's very much their choice. They weren't sent to, to these workshops. So there's a hunger for this kind of work. There's a hunger in rural spots for more, um, I think, creative programmes. So hopefully we can help to, to meet
0: that demand. Monica Spencer there, talking to Anya Gallagher by the banks of the Morning Star River. And you heard also from Julianne Henley and some of her group of local singer-songwriters. Call and response continues throughout September. Stepping into the garden has meant stepping into a world of colour in the work of Maire Tobin. Much of the artist's career has been spent in the monochrome domain of her sculptures in slate or bronze, but her latest work at Limerick City Gallery of Art, Common Ground, marks a prolonged dive into plant forms and shades, observed both in her own garden in Castle Connell and in the National Botanical Gardens in Dublin. Ornya Gallagher met the artist for a walk through the floral forms of her exhibition and indeed of the People's Park in search of a common thread
3: We're here in People's Park now it's a municipal park in the city centre in Perry Square, it's a beautiful park and um, at the moment it's planted up with a lot of herbaceous uh, plants like begonias and petunias lovely. look at that beautiful striped petunia with the yellow and magenta colours in it and lovely grasses low-lying grasses but it's vibrant with colour and movement, actually, at the moment. It's a bit of a breeze. My stripy petunias are moving in the wind. So there's yellows as well. So it's quite a shocking mix-mash of uh, vibrant kind of... Uh, f- they're fighting with each other in other ways, but it's a jewel of a garden, I think. Mm. So the garden, this time round, I think, seems to be a lot more planted than it used to be. There's a lovely bandstand. I think it's Victorian. But it's a, it's a lovely sanctuary in the middle of a city. Um, you can hear sirens in the background now. <laughs> we know we 're in the city. <laughs> my name is Murray uh, Tobin, and i 'm a painter, sculptor. For most of my career, I was a sculptor. Most of the work was done in slate and limestone. Then I did a mixture of bronze and various mediums, you know mixed media. Uh, I then subsequently went into painting. I started about 15 years ago, but seriously, in the last number of years, I guess I've started to paint with a little bit of sculpture as well but now it's back to just painting and color originally the work was mostly monochromatic except obviously in the bronze i can get to patinas um but uh, this recent work now is definitely an explosion of color for me and i think during the lockdown it was a great way of kind of releasing and shedding all the darkness i guess um, and just brightening up my life first thing that i noticed um, i came up to the atrium Orange, yeah, I and a really, point. really bright orange. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It started about three years ago, and it was just built up over that time. Over COVID, um, the show had been it was scheduled to happen about two years ago, and then it got cancelled twice. So yeah, finally we're here, and it's great to be up. Do you think without COVID there wouldn't have been this explosion of nature within the body of work? Possibly not. It was there in some of them early on, but probably not to the extent that I ran with it. It's interesting that you say that you worked predominantly with slate and limestone. You can really actually see that now in the paintings as I look around, that like the patterns and the surfaces are just so complex, but you can just see the, the similarity of when you look at a stone for a really long time and you start to see the colours and the pattern. Yeah, the process is there, the paint is kind of seeping over the edges and I think it is because the process actually takes so long in itself. I think the, um, the process of applying the gesso onto the um, birch ply, like it's maybe four layers of, of gesso over kind of like um, muslin and then just built up and then it's obviously layers of paint and after that I'm waiting for paint to dry in the wintertime. Is, as you say, very exciting, <laughs> and I kind of would wonder sometimes about using oil paint as against acrylic, but certainly I was, you know, beside myself, I'd say, a few times over the winter, waiting. Some light coming off the orange, isn't there? There is, yeah, isn't there? Yeah, it's <laughs> almost like it's uh luminous, in some way. it is, and then there's deeper oranges, and you go closer. I think a lot of them you need to. Be very close to actually see because there's a you know a wealth of history is is a eh, underneath. Yeah, that um, layers and layers. Layers and layers. Yeah we're in the smallest room of the exhibition. these are uh, smaller in scale as well than most of the others around the other three rooms and um, they're more intimate, I suppose. Feminine, I would say, looking at them now, looking, sitting down here watching them. <laughs> um, and some of them then have um, themes like scent ampoules, scent bottles, and then others are sea-based, like um, sea anemone there and the... Um, I suppose they're, they're a bit like limpets on rocks and things like that, but it has quite a very colourful background. But, but there, there is a thread going through them, I suppose, of um, the plants and just nature in general, I suppose, um, and elements. There are certain aspects of flowers. It isn't just about the petals, it's about... How their, their structure is made up for protective you know, reasons, whether they don't want to be eaten by you know, cows or whatever, or whether yeah. they're wind protected or that kind of thing. And then I'm kind of going from that, I suppose, to seascapes to kind of nature, you know, in, in another you know, sense. Uh, like that one there is uh, seascape, um, partial sea views. And I think it's just about breaking down how we're looking at. Spaces, expanses. You know, when you look at oceans, it's such a big, wide, huge expanse. They're all condensed into little egg-shaped little portals. Into yeah, it's you know, like the mesh, it is. Like the, it's yes. like the mesh, mesh. It obviously. is. Yeah. And it slows you down. It kind of makes you look a bit closer, and then you see different things happening in each one. But as a whole, it it, it does read. But you still have to work at reading it, even as a, as a whole now, because it's so perforated with the little. I really feel things. now at this point I should be writing down everything that I have done so that I can remember for the next time how things happened because um, there is a lot of experimentation I think in, in the method and w- in the way of work and it, it isn't planned, a lot of stuff isn't planned it's just layered up and then I'm looking at it reassessing it and deciding what it, where I want to go with a piece editing it I guess But it's a hard process because you don't know. You're kind of working off the seat of your pants in a lot of ways because you're not... Sometimes I work off sketches, but mostly I don't. It's more intuitive, I suppose. Okay. So you don't have always a clear picture of where things are going. I do what I like, I suppose, what interests me, and, um, you know, take it from there then, you know. The realisation comes after the fact. Sometimes, yeah. does. The but... definition of organic is good
0: enough. <laughs> <laughs> Mairead Tobin, they are talking to Ornya Gallagher and that exhibition, Common Thread, runs till Sunday in Limerick City Gallery of Art. Next on Culture File: How traditional storytelling holds its own in a world of clicks and touchscreens. Inspired by what he calls the ninja storytelling of the likes of Peg Sayers, Niall De Burca has travelled the world telling tales. His spinning blends patinated yarns with psychogeographic lore and the myths of contemporary media, hopping from the art world to the multiplex in one lung full of air. This month, De Burca sets off on a tour of the Western Seaboard with what he calls his wild Atlantic tales. Culture files. Louise McMahon went to hear some of those tales by the ocean near Milltown Malby in County Clare.
4: Bran woke up at the dawning of the day and jumped up and he did say, Aye, time for me to go for my snuff. All around him, the warriors in his fort, they're all asleep. But Bran, being a leader, he was an early riser. Rishamak, he runs outside, runs down to the sea, throws off his shirt. The sun is shining, the green Iktanav. Lemsha shaks in this guy, into the farakah, and he started to swim. Duck-dived under the water. He looks up. You ever duck-dive under the water and see the shafts of sunlight coming down? It felt so good to be alive. The ethos of Shkeliot is free-flow. Every generation interprets the stories and tells them in a different way, and every particular individual storyteller has their own style. I think you can get an impression of my style, and I was quite free-flowing, and it's just inhabiting it. So it's not scripted or anything. Here we're standing just north of Weistrand in West Clare. If we look to the north, we'll see Hags Head and the beginning of the Cliffs of Moher. We flick around, we look down south, we'll see Dúnbeg. Within that space alone, there's... Spanish ship sinkings, sunken villages, the fairies. There's Dune, you know, the old god of the dead. There's all this mix of folklore and legend and lived experience and nature. Let's say we do a story based here in Clare. It'll be with some of the fauna, some of the animals of the coast. There'll be all sorts of stuff in there like ecology, self-esteem, anti-bullying, because you can do all that with myth and legend. I'll just start a very quick story, shall I? This is from my childhood. So we walk into the West of Ireland cinema And there I am with my macaroon bar, my daddy beside me eating his chuck ice In front of us is a bald man with a comb-over hairdo. And beside him, to his right, two teenagers. Engaging in what teenagers sometimes did in those times in cinemas. The adverts went on and on and on. Honda 50. CB Geige, the name you can trust. And then the film opens with a scene. There's a young couple sitting by the fire. One of them, he's got a guitar. And beside him is a beautiful young woman with blonde hair and good teeth. She's North American. She stands up and she goes, I'm going for a swim. She probably wasn't from the South, but I don't care. She runs away from the fire, stripping off her clothes. I'm 12. I'm leaning forward. My father stops licking his chalk ice The couple, the teenagers, they stop kissing. She gets to the water. She's naked. She dives in, hustling. She snorts. She's swimming. And the camera goes under the water. You can see... It's azure, blue, and dark denim. That's part of a story that's about why we are scared, because we're still on the food chain, but it's about growing up in the west of Ireland in a certain period. It's a collective human experience, so I can tell that story all over the world, because there's millions all over the world that put their toe in the water. And it's also a story about migration, a story about reconciliation. So, it's all layered, and that's what Scaliacht is about. For me, like many of my generation, I emigrated. I was in London and Germany and traveled to other places. Then I fell in love and ended up in New Zealand. And I was on the road there telling my stories. People would ask me to go to different events. More festivals began to invite me. Museums began to invite me to perform in museums to to kind of bring the collections alive. And then somebody asked me to go to a city called New Plymouth, which is in the province of Taranaki, to do an, an interpretation of an exhibition by a kinetic artist called Len Lai. So I had to study all up about that and then go in and do do it orally. I was nervous beforehand. And then of course once you're on the stage, you're like a pig in a trough. I was loving it. And that opened up a whole new thing for me. One of the things I really loved when I was living in Polynesia is that there were aspects of traditional Polynesian culture that seemed to me to be a direct time capsule from the heroic age in northwest Europe. And I specifically speak about maybe the stories of Fiona the Fianna. I could be there with my father-in-law, he'd go out hunting for wild boar with a knife. Or they'd go hunting deer, like just wearing a pair of white gumboots. Or you'd be sitting on a log on the Wanganui River with a trident in your hand and a leg of old meat thrown in the water with a rope and waiting to light a torch so you could catch some meals. So it seemed to me that I was fascinated by that. Because I was so isolated from Ireland at the time, because it was pre-internet and I was just a young lad making my way in the world, I really got into looking at the similarities between the two cultures and I found it very inspirational. It was good training for me for my career in the arts. You had to get out there, you had to be on the road. You might be stuck in the South Island for three days with a storm in the Cook Strait before you get back. Being on the road, the resilience of the road, that's what you build up. You know, to talk about the, the, the links between Gaelic and Polynesian culture in Hawaii, there's such a strong landscape, like here in, on the Wild Atlantic Way. It's so elemental, you know, where the elements meet, the deep ocean and, and the land and the rock formations. So I, I find that and find it very stimulating. A lot of kids now, they see that through Hollywood movies, you know, yes, yeah. Moana and that, yeah. but the thing about traditional storytelling is, it's mainlined. It's straight from, it's straight from the imagination and voice of the of the, Shkali, the storyteller, straight into the ears and the hearts of the listeners. So it's like old school. And that for me is what it's all about. Nervish vehicle Fiekelreev. A good word never broke a tooth.
0: Niall de Burke there and the reporter was Louise McMahon. The Wild Atlantic Tales will premiere at the Glore Irish Music Centre in Ennis on September 24th before setting off on its nine-date journey from Tralee to Letterkenny. I've never heard of a Lady Thatcher, says the local publican taking the sun outside his thatched pub near Ballinahoun in County Galway. You might envy him his power to edit 20th century history if he weren't actually discussing the arrival of Marika Lean, a Dutch woman and Thatcher by trade who spent this past summer working on a nearby roof. The house was once the home of progressive torchbearer Noel Brown, but for a Thatcher, it's the history buried in decades of reeds and straw that she wants to read. She told Culturephile her tale of bobbins and scallops.
5: These scallops are gone so hard, so dried out. That's why I have the barrel. I steep them if they can't too dry from lying in the sun. So I don't know how easy they are to to twist. I came to us touching in multiple. <laughs> well, or originally I came to us because I came to Ireland when I was 15 and. I was sort of traveling around and I met these three bachelor farmers, brothers, and they more or less took me in and we we all liked each other and I was very useful to them because they were getting old and one of them was the thatcher. So they were 60, 70 and 80 and Tom, the 70 year old, used to be the thatcher of the sort of the village and he used to do the house and he had an injury from walking in the forest So he wasn't able to go up on the ladder anymore and the roof was in a really bad condition when I got there. So they thought, hmm, somebody young, full of energy, let's make use of that. So I was put up on the roof and I was shown the ropes from down below, do this, do that. This is a scallop, this is how you pull straw. And that's how I got into it. That is quite a long time ago because I'm going to be 55 and I was 15. I sort of ran away from home. I was a very um, stubborn teenager that just wanted to follow my nose, (laughs) follow the adventure. So uh, I was I was working on a fishing boat in Scotland and I had met somebody in Galway that I fancied. So the next year I was traveling down I I was working in Campbelltown in Scotland on a fishing boat and I took a boat to Northern Ireland to one of the fishing ports and hitched my way down and then in Dublin I got a lift from um, what turned out to be my neighbour, my lifelong neighbour, and he says, um, well you probably don't realise but if you're meeting somebody that you like you might want to have a shower because there's an awful smell of fish of you. I used to play music at the time and I was telling him about it and how, how I was mad into music. And so he said, well, you should call up to my neighbors because they, they, love, they would love meeting you and talk to you about music. And that's how I met the with the three men. Oh, I liked living there with the three brothers and they did everything the way it was done for centuries which is gone now, but to me it was all new because I came from Holland and I had never, even though I'm from the countryside, I had never seen work being done with horses and you know all the farm work was still done with a horse. We went to the forest to get timber, we traced timber out of the forest with the, with the horse and so I thought it was mighty interesting. And same as that, detaching I thought was really, really remarkable how you can actually make a roof out of material that you grow yourself and that grows all around you. And I mean, it still has that appeal. Never lost its shine for me, Touch sun shining down on you, you're overlooking the Atlantic Ocean, beautiful, beautiful scenery, the mountains of Connemara in the distance. The shiny gray stones all around you and rocks. And oh, it's absolutely gorgeous here. It's really, really nice. When you take a couple of layers off and you find the straw, that's already, for me, that's historical. And then usually I find loads of different materials. Not only straw. I find like this grass that grows on the mountain here. In English, it's purple moorgrass, I think it's called. In this instance, because I was taking off so many layers of reed, what was left underneath was in good condition. And I'd say it was always le- uh, looked after really well by the family before. I came across um twisted straw rope, like the sukan rope. And that would have held down the, the, the straw by means of um, wooden pins that... They were driftwood and pointed and then driven through the sukan rope. An average cottage would be around 100 to 120 square meters. This roof is a lot bigger. I'd say this could be 160. So on an average smaller roof, you already use 2,500 scallops to fix it on. My proper work, I usually make bobbins and that's a sort of a, an art work. Bobbins are actually, um, handfuls of straw that you twist 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 and then you bend them over and you tie them together and you put them all on a hazel stick so when you look at it then people can see it's my work i think it's really pretty because it looks like um when you're braiding your hair it's called a plait so it looks like the plaited mane of a of a horse yeah, like a decoration, but it's also it's 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 multi-purpose because it's for keeping the comb onto the roof, and it's also nice to see a nice bit of decoration on it. I don't know. Sometimes it sounds nearly like fantastic, Mr. Fox. Even though my life has been extremely boring ever since I landed there, but uh, yeah, yeah, you probably everybody has it. It feels like in your younger years, the few years that you do do things um are so you know because it's it's such a short time of your life but everything seems so intense (laughs) and then when you look back here and later on you think oh my god that was only two or three years or four years or whatever you know and and since then 35 years have passed and like what did i do all those other years
0: (laughs) 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 but it's I like it that it's a happy story, you know, because somebody in that position who ran away from home at 15, it could be a really unhappy story.
5: Oh, 100%. And all <laughs> my best friends all committed suicide and that sort of a thing. Drug, drug overdose. I mean, early 80s. Desperate times. Desperate uh, times for a lot of young people. A bit like now, I suppose. It goes around in circles, doesn't it? Or cycles, I should say. They found a good way out. And I've been happy with it ever since. (laughs) Found my passion for (laughs) thatching.
0: Master Thatcher Marika Lean there, finishing a comb in Cloughmore. And that brings to a close this edition of the Culturefile Weekly. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe or follow us on Apple Podcasts or your favourite platform. And we'll be back at 6.30pm next Saturday. Till then, bye now.